Welcome to the Leadership Labs with DeepRec.ai, a podcast where we delve into the fascinating world of deep tech entrepreneurship, company founders, and venture capitalists. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly, and I'm thrilled to have you join us in this exciting journey. In each episode, we explore the minds behind groundbreaking technologies, the visionaries who dare to push the boundaries of innovation, and the investors who fuel the growth of tomorrow's game changers. Hello, everyone, and welcome, and a big welcome to this week's guest, Eric Bowman. Um, Eric is currently the Chief Technology Officer at TomTom, and in this episode, we're going to cover, of course, about his experience in TomTom, his background in in leadership, um, how he drives to have accountability, and then some advice of what he would give to modern-day founders. before we hit into all those topics, Eric, let's let's loop it back to you. Let's. How did you start? When was when was your first interaction with with technology? What's your background been? Uh, thanks, Anthony, and I really appreciate you uh, having me on the show here. Um, yeah, so I think I I think the first time I saw a computer must have been about nineteen seventy eight. Uh, some neighbors got an Apple II for Christmas, and. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I really, I can remember the exact feeling of the exact moment of the first time I saw uh, someone write a program. And even though I I didn't actually have my own computer for many years after that, it that was a transformational moment. And um, I, you know, I wanted to be a physicist for a long time, but computers were always part of um, almost everything I did. Uh, as much as I could, and then gradually it became clear that what I really should be doing is uh, using computers to solve uh, solve problems. So that's uh, that's kind of when it all started. I, I wrote lots of basic programs in the 1980s, and then learned C and C++, and then Java and Scala, and it did a lot of uh, programming, both uh, personally and, and professionally, uh, kind of the first half of my career, and then I switched to management uh, about 10 years ago. Did you take the traditional route into industry? Did you have an education in computer science? No, I've never actually taken any kind of computer science class. Um, I went to a really small liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon called Reed College, which didn't have a computer science department. Uh, So I'm largely self-taught. but at the time, that wasn't that uncommon either. So it was kind of, for the early 1990s, not an untraditional road to take into the industry. But I do often wonder what I missed out on, although I spend a lot of time uh, self-educating to no, this it's, day. That's good, right? And I guess we will touch on founder's advice later, but kind of similar about learning, right? Fail fast. Um, you've got you've to see if it works pretty quick. Um, yeah, so then, look, you, you've navigated quite a, quite a good career. When did you start to move into to management? What was your first management position? Yeah, so for, for some years, I worked uh, as a contractor, uh, as a programmer, and I found that I kind of enjoyed being outside the organizational structure and not having to deal with kind of the corporate function, and I could just focus on getting the job done. Uh, but then I, I took a, a job with a company called Guilt Group, which was a U.S.-based fashion e-commerce flash site that was a unicorn uh, around 10 or 11, I guess 12 years ago now. Um, and there they offered me the opportunity to become a manager, and I had a great deal of respect for how I saw them managing and what the, the values of the founders were and the culture that they wanted to create. And that was the first time that I thought, eh, maybe I could try this. Um, and I, I pretty quickly went from a team of seven people to, to about a team of 50 people over the course of uh, maybe six months or something, or a little bit longer. Um, and then I had the opportunity to join Zalando in Berlin as, the first, as their first uh, VP software engineering and, and inherited a team of uh, around 300 and the challenge to grow that uh, to over a thousand. So um, I was kind of lucky enough to get on sort of a fast track where I had to figure out a lot of uh, a lot of management techniques uh, quickly, and um, that you know I had a had you know a a very rapid shift from I think I think of it from being a management 
problem to being a management solution. Um, and, but, but quickly found that I really enjoyed it much more than I thought that I would. And then I began to wonder if I had waited too long because, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, what it takes to manage effectively, and and uh, you know whether I do or not is kind of still an open question. But you know, try to get better. But it, it does take time and experience, and uh, there is a lot to learn. And very very often, people underestimate what it takes to manage well. In my experience, well, um, well, it's funny that you contracted for so long to try and stay away from you know corporate, you know strategy what goes on what goes on behind the curtains yeah and then very quickly you were the one behind the curtains yeah and it, well you know it was a missed opportunity for me the kind of education that i that i had and the kind of education that i wanted and the background that i came from did not really value the challenge of business and and the challenge of kind of an enterprise um and i really even though i hugely value the education that i got i do um, I do regret that I didn't have the perspective, uh, th that actually really trying to solve business problems in the real world is hugely engaging and hugely intellectually challenging and requires the full palette of, of thinking, you know, ahead, thinking in the moment, influencing people. It really is a multidisciplinary human challenge, uh, which is very, very exciting. Nice. Yeah. We can touch on more on that. After I want to hear about moving into TomTom, Tom, what what was expected of you? You know, you've as you said you come from this role with Zalando, taking three hundred to one thousand, and I mean Zalando have become somewhat of a giant in Germany um, and Dublin. <laughs> uh, but then to go to TomTom, Tom, who look, I can't say for sure if it was a similar challenge or a bigger challenge just yet. But yeah, yeah. what was that initial? move what was it supposed to look like yeah so you know tom is a unique company uh it's uh it's still a founder led company uh you know 30 odd years later it was bootstrapped it was not a venture capital backed um company and um you know it experienced incredible success they invented an entire new uh product category um but you know, uh, kind of around the time of the financial crisis uh, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, uh, it you know it stumbled a little bit. Um, and, and while I was there the first time, but I, I really, you know, as I went on and worked in other companies, I always had a, a fondness for the location domain. There's something about location technology that's different. It's you know, it maps are this primal thing, you know, one of the things that really separates humans from other species, no other species, despite many species have some form of language, but there's no other species that, that will, for example, draw a map in the dirt to show another member of the species that there's, you know, food or danger or a cave around the corner, like the ability to express a, a, a mental idea, uh, in external form that that communicates to others is pretty unique, uniquely human. So if you think about it, you know, maps and clothing, uh, which connects kind of to Gilk Group and Zalando, are, are two of these primal human things. And I and I I find find that primality very appealing. So I, I kind of carried with me a love of of the domain and a tremendous amount of respect for the founders who really have their their own style and, you know, have created, I think, a great company. And um, it was always in my in my mind. So as Zalando, we kind of reached, you know, a point where it was really quite successful. And I felt like the work that I had come was largely accomplished in the form of radical agility and organizing at quite a large scale. Um, Tom Tom, you know, as the as the founders kind of uh, approach sort of the final chapter you know, uh, they reached out, uh, the CEO and, you know, I, I became quite excited at how they were thinking about, um, how some of the, some of their, I, you know, I think aspirations from, from early on, which turned out to be harder than they thought were becoming much more doable with cloud technology, much more doable with advancements, uh, in machine learning and AI. And, um, you know, I was, I, you know, I had a kind of a built-in love already, 
for the company and the people and the, the vision um, for the next iteration, I, I just found incredibly exciting. And, and so uh, I joined in 2019 and um, we've brought on a number of, of really amazing people to join what was already an amazing team. And, and we're now in a significant uh, transformation with a new maps platform and a new SDK and really trying to um, kind of, you know, re-level up the company to be a, a first-class uh, and a world-class tech company that's really kind of leading the conversation. And we've seen, we've had some tremendous uh, success over the past couple of years. And, you know, most, most recently um, the announcement with uh, Meta and Amazon and Microsoft and TomTom starting the Overture Foundation, for example, was uh, a really, really nice. I and mean, it's not a commercial milestone, but it is an, an indicator of the progress that we've really made, really bringing TomTom back into the conversation, back on the map, so to speak. That's really, really good stuff. I really like the um, personal outreach you sort of have from, uh, from the CEO. I mean, if, if a message is ever going to get your attention, it's, it's going to be one of them. Um, quite interesting as well. You mentioned about maps being primal and being human specific. This is complete tin foil hat wearing topic that I'm going to mention, but really good if you're in the pub and you want to, you want to talk about it with your friends. Uh, in the 1500s, when maps were written and drawn up, they all had Antarctica. Now, the big challenge with that is Antarctica was said to only be discovered in the 1800s. So there's a lot to try and understand how were they being written in maps 300 years before. Um, <laughs> you know, you, yeah, you, know. you have a couple well, of years and your friends have worked that out. <laughs> there is, of course, a very secret uh, society that's been going on for hundreds of years uh, of map makers, and they, they do know the answer. But, of course, I'm not uh, liberty to share that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, let's let's talk about then what comes what comes with leadership. And again, look, your your experience has been massively different. You've gone from high tech unicorn growth to Zalando being SME on their way to fashion powerhouse, and then to to Tom Tom, who were well established when you moved back in the league to leadership, but. How how do you how do you break down leadership and totally appreciate it's different for you? You have multiple engineering teams, multiple product teams, but how do you set that up? Because again, what what might work for ten people might also work for a thousand people. Yeah, if it's if it's done right, and if you can get the next layer down to believe into your philosophy, that's that in my opinion is what you would say is scalable leadership. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a few things that come to mind. There, there's a, uh, there's quite a famous book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There that's uh, very frequently given to uh, managers as they reach a certain scale. And uh, it, there is, you know, there are the, the challenges of being a, a first-time manager, say, managing an individual team and what it takes to run multiple teams and teams of teams. They're, they're very different skills, of course, and, and, Generally, one would start uh, with a smaller team and and uh, and then start to level up. And there's a, a there's kind of a path for doing that. Um, but I think you know one one key thing is that it's really it's essential to differentiate between what is management and what is leadership. And um, both are really important. But the way people talk about them, they they very often either you know, conflate them to mean the same thing, uh, which does a disservice to both. Uh, or they, you know, they, they, they kind of denigrate the idea of management as, as a bit old fashioned and no longer needed. And part of what I found to be very useful is to very carefully separate the two concepts and try to put them on equal footing. They're, they're two different tools, essentially, you know, behavioral tools at the end of the day, which are appropriate and important in different circumstances. And part of the skill set of, of more senior leaders, whether managers or not, is being able to distinguish between them and, and apply the right tool at the right moment. Um, 
as you know, what management ultimately is, is about predicting and bringing predictability to what uh, a, a group of people are trying to do. And at its very essence, that's what it is. And that predictability applies uh, in lots of different uh, kind of arenas of management. You, you, you kind of like individual employees who you're managing to be, to gain some predictability around what their career path will be. And the company would very much like some predictability around what is the output of the team going to be and how, how you actually create that predictability is the real challenge of management. Because of course there are many different conflicting constraints and requirements going on. If the team needs to be very innovative, for example, predictability uh, is not always possible, but, but still, you want to try to frame it in such a way that there's some measure of predictability, break the problems down. And, you know, it's, it may sound like I'm over trivializing it. Uh, and, and it's not trivial. Creating predictability is enormously difficult, especially all the, across the different dimensions that managers have to work. But, um, that for me is a useful anchor, uh, to the, 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 that's a simple idea that hides the enormous complexity of all the different things that managers have to do. But, you know, fundamentally managing is hard and managing is much more interesting than I thought. Uh, and certainly it's very common, especially for tech people and software engineers to think, you know, manage management is stupid and managers are stupid. And why do we need this? Just, we know what to do. Let us go. And honestly, I felt that way for a good half of my career. Leadership, on the other hand, um, you know, there are lots of sort of pithy uh, ways to look at leadership and, and, and tidy little sayings. You know, leadership is about getting people to want to do what has to be done. That's kind of a useful um, description. But uh, ultimately, what I found is the most practical way to look at it is mostly derived um, from the work of someone named Ronald Heifetz, who teaches at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And he he's considered to be kind of the main, there are a few other people, but his name very often rises to the top uh, behind something called adaptive leadership, which is in a way a response to transformational leadership, which is a very kind of common way that people see leadership working where leaders are meant to be charismatic and they have visions and they get everybody excited and, and follow me. And, but adaptive leadership looks at it in a very different way. And it starts by saying, Hey, you know, there's a leadership is more of a behavior than a role. It's like, yes, people are given the role of leader, but, but leadership itself is something that really anyone can practice. Um, and, you know, fundamentally what that leadership looks like is, uh, when you identify a gap from between where we are and where we want to be, leadership is taking the risk to close the gap. And depending on kind of where your leadership level is uh, and, you know, other contexts, more or less risk might be appropriate to the context. It's You can't really pre prescribe what is the right level of risk, but for sure, if you're trying to show leadership and you overextend and take too big a risk, you're, you're likely to fail. And if you don't take enough risk, you're also likely to fail in a different way. And similar to the idea that management is about predictability, leadership is as the behavior to close gaps are these very simple ideas that really mask, you know, the, the enormous, like just the incredible array of richness of the human experience as humans, try to organize and create value. And, um, you know, it's also kind of a simple idea, but the whole reason we do any of this is simply to create value for some kind of customer somewhere. And uh, it turns out these simple ideas actually are pretty helpful uh, when applied consistently. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's kind of at a high level how uh, I would break it down. I've got one for you here, Rick. So, very easy way. It's hard for companies to distinguish and separate these roles, right? In some cases, they put a leadership and management into one position. And it was once broken down to me before. So, the guy at the top of the pirate ship, he's in the crow's nest. He's, he's the manager. He's saying where to go. And the captain is actually the leader. He's in there. He's inspiring the troops. He's getting them, he's getting them going. 
it would never work if the captain had to be in both places, right? However, in business, you're also, yeah, let's do the strategy. Some case, let's lead the team. And in some case, hey, you've still got to write a bit of code yourself, right? You've got to stay close to the product. You've got to, you've got to know what's going on. How do we avoid these situations? Or if you're already in one, what should you do? I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understood the situation that you're. So, what, what, so, what's the situation you're in? So th the situation is: is one person is doing the leadership tasks, the management tasks, and also being a, a coder, right? Oh, um, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's you're. I guess you cannot you cannot give a hundred percent to anything. So your strategy is not one hundred percent. Your team leadership, caring of your people, is not one hundred percent, and your own personal work is also not one hundred percent. Yeah. So it's it's stressful, it's hard. How do you stop these situations happening? Yeah, okay. I yeah, that's uh that is tricky. I I think um there's a couple things that come to mind. One is, you know, if, if you think about leadership and management really more as behaviors than roles, certain things become easier. Uh and individuals can choose when the when the behavior that's needed uh, at a given moment is the what's the right behavior to choose. And it's a common thing for, say, a software engineer who becomes an engineering manager. They, they might want to keep coding. Uh, they almost certainly are going to want to be providing technical leadership to the team. And then all of a sudden they're expected to manage. And it's quite common uh, for them to try and do all of those things and ultimately end up doing none of them uh, very well. What I found is quite helpful in this situation is, uh, and, and many companies do this as well, is to have kind of good support in the job ladder for different engineering roles to make it kind of clear what's, what are the, what's the appropriate expectation and then what are the kind of tools that are available uh, for a, a, you know, a, a early in their career team leader, say, to apply to that. Uh, problem. So, you know, there's in, in many tech teams, there's a few sort of obvious roles. There's software engineers, there, there's some kind of manager. They're very often a product person. It could be a product manager, it could be a product owner. Uh, there are designers, there can be data scientists. Um, there may be project managers. There can be scrum masters. There can be agile. Like, there's all these different possible roles. For me, I like to try to keep it as simple as possible and reduce the number of roles. Um, like the, so the kind of core software team has uh, software engineers and an engineering manager and possibly a staff engineer, depending on and depending on the seniority of the manager and the seniority of the staff engineer, that staff engineer might report to that manager or might report to a more senior manager. And you know, one of the kind of nomenclature differences uh, around the industry right now is whether those engineers are are called staff engineers or principal engineers. I've come to prefer staff because it, it gives a hint uh, about where they fit into the organization. So if you, in a larger organization, when you have a very senior person, that person sometimes has a staff. It's also common in, in, uh, in military situations. They might have a staff officer. And that essentially that means that that's a pretty senior person that reports to a pretty senior person and doesn't typically have their own team. So this is kind of an individual contributor of sufficient seniority who can go where the problems are. And this is a very, very powerful concept, which many, many companies until recently have not really figured out. Like the only way for software engineers, for example, to advance in their career was to become managers uh, without necessarily figuring out does this person want to be a manager? Are they suitable for management, which is a different set of skills? Um, and then, you know, one of the superpowers for many companies is to have sufficiently senior individual contributors who are really able to focus on the content. And, um, you know, I've seen a, a number of, of kind of failed approaches to this where, where maybe more old-fashioned companies just felt uncomfortable having expensive senior people, uh, a, a relatively small number. Uh, so, it's, but it's nice for me to see that that is more common. 
So very helpful in that situation is if a staff engineer can help that engineering manager make the transition. Another approach is that engineering manager may choose someone on the team to be a kind of a tech lead type, which is not usually not an official role, but but they're essentially delegating uh, certain technical decision making to someone else who is who is a, a software engineer. But it is, I mean, I think you've hi- highlighted uh, a very real phenomenon, which is that um, you know it, it's like people. In my experience, people don't really fear change uh, so much. They fear loss. And so when when people are resistant to make the change that's kind of expected of them, when when circumstances change, so for example, becoming go, moving from a software engineer to being an engineering manager, they've very often loved that job. And uh, they may, especially if it's their only opportunity for advancement, they make make the decision for the wrong reasons and then suffer a real feeling of loss that, and and then keep coding for example it's very common i've seen that many many times and um you know that's something really that that a company needs to deal with how how to choose people who want to be managers create the conditions where wanting to be a manager is a, is a thing that can happen and then helping them make the transition uh in, into this new role with kind of clear expectations for what that transition typically looks like. It's not even that hard to do, but many companies don't do that. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like the part where you're trying to say, like, designate people roles based on personality, delegate them out. I think there's elements of that that can become, I know we're going to use the word culture, but culture comes from communication, right? Letting someone know, this is my new role. Really appreciate it. if you could do this. I think so because you have x y z skills this is what your new week looks like are you okay with that right could really could really narrow it up um but also i I wanted to flip back as well so you've been in massively hyper growth teams you know they've scaled fast performed really well like like all businesses if a team starts underperforming there's no more hiring until the current team is performing how how did you keep your teams performing well? Well, that, yeah, there's. <laughs> I've tried a few different approaches, and not all of them worked. Um, I think the there's no easy easy answer for that, but there are, I think, some some key elements of just how groups work and how human psychology works. Uh, that are that are helpful and in general you know it start like you, you you i really like that you made the connection between culture and communication uh i did actually didn't realize those words are are related but it and i don't know for sure that they are but it sounds like they are and it's helpful it makes sense that they are because if people aren't communicating it's not much of a culture and for sure the best cultures that i've been a part of were cultures where people were open uh and felt safe to communicate. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, moved by the research that Google did around psychological safety in teams um, and diversity inclusion in general, where uh, as a, as a manager or as a leader, you know, doing the work to make sure that you're hearing from everyone is, uh, is very important. There isn't a single approach to how to build high performance teams. Uh, it does depend a lot on the context. And so, you know, it requires uh, something called situational leadership, which is paradoxically more of a management technique to figure out what uh, people need. But at the same time, there are clear patterns. And one of those patterns is that it, it really is quite important that people, at least at the team level, set goals. And get regular kind of uh, have regular check-in points where they can talk openly and honestly about what's going on. It is clear that people got to understand why they're doing that. Working towards some form of mission, a simple statement of what we're trying to do, uh, is actually much more powerful than I initially thought, and and much more utilitarian. It it really does provide. Um, 
subtle nudges through a number of different interactions that people have that it just it, it reduces the cognitive load of remembering what we're trying to do um i would break it down to the that maybe one of the most powerful tools for getting teams on the right track is actually being a very like a real stickler about a clear understanding of what is the problem that we're trying to solve very often people in this industry are very solution oriented and you know as humans uh, with human brains we're subject to a lot of different cognitive um bias effects and and perhaps the mother of them all is confirmation bias and and we fall in love with our own ideas very easily and i and i've done this probably tens of thousands of times in my career you know where i think i understand the problem if that is the problem, I know a great solution. I love that solution. And I put a lot of energy into making sure that we implement that solution. And then it turns out I didn't actually understand the problem. Um, and so creating the conditions where uh, people feel comfortable, for example, reframing a problem statement for themselves, people being unsatisfied, being handed a problem, they feel like they got to turn it in. They, they need to go through the process of identifying the problem and making it their own. That for me is a very powerful cultural element that really helps with high performance. When you actually take people who are struggling to understand uh, why between them, there may be this lacking cohesion, this force between people that helps them create, you know, kind of synergy or the idea that we can create something greater than the sum of parts. Uh, I found that very often, and I and I do this. Uh, I ask people independently to tell me what is the problem that they're trying to solve, and when it turns out it's, they're not solving the same problem, then ask them to work together and and try to come to a shared understanding of that problem. And when they actually do that, things go an awful lot better. And when they don't see the value of that, or they find excuses to not do that, things tend not to improve. Um. There, there are a couple ideas, I think, uh, as manager in these situations that really helps people um, helps people be safer and find more innovative solutions. Uh, there, there's a couple ideas that, that I've stolen from Eli Goldratt, who, who uh, is sometimes considered kind of the, the, the father or godfather of DevOps. He wrote a book called The Goal in the 1980s. And his, la his last book was called The Choice. And... Uh, it was a kind of a conversation with his daughter. And she said to him, hey, everybody says you're a genius and you keep saying you're not a genius. You know, what is it that you do differently then? If you're not a genius, you still produce uh, outstanding results. So what do you do differently? And and he, he kind of broke it down to four things. It, essentially, he never says that he knows something. He never says, yeah, yeah, I know that. Never say that. Um, number two is this idea that there is inherent simplicity in things that any complex idea, if you work hard enough, can be made simple. And that if it if if it's still complicated or complex, then you haven't put the work in to simplify it. And then when you're working at scale, the utility of simplified descriptions of reality, models or maps, if you will, the utility of them is enormous, far exceeds our intuition. Uh the third point he makes is that conflict between people is actually, uh, he describes it as an illusion. I'm not sure I would go quite that far. It's pretty real. But the the what he says that I find very, very practical is that almost always when you actually go to the work to identify what are the assumptions behind people's different points of view, what you find is that they lack uh alignment around assumptions. They disagree on what the assumptions are behind the the ongoing discussion. Sometimes simply becoming aware of the uh, assumptions that you hadn't thought of that turn out to be real assumptions or valid assumptions is very, very helpful to gain consensus. Other times we identify that assumptions are simply incorrect. And shine that is in terms of shining a light on the on the process and the process of interaction and working together deciding that conflict, when we see conflict, it's not real. It's only a symptom of not fully understanding uh, what is the problem that we're trying to solve it is tremendous. And then number four is never blame. And those four ideas together 
when practiced, especially by senior people, but also almost as a as a disciplined approach to at least your work life, if not your home life. Very, very powerful for creating trust and creating the conditions where people can bring out their best. And at the end of the day, if you want to lead people, you got to bring out their best. Quite, quite good. How um, I would say almost four out of four hundred dollars would relate back to one way or another c- communication, right? Um, exactly. Which I, I, I'm a big fan of. It. I'm a big fan of of doing it right. Although I know there's no right way, but there's my right way. My right way. Many wrong be, ways, but my, well, my, without <laughs> being an exactly right way. Yes. My, my right way would be try your best to over communicate, right? You're following up emails in a meeting you've just had so that there's also time for anyone who was in the meeting. Actually, don't get this. Great. You know, if, if you if you didn't get it in the meeting, here's your second chance. And then also occasionally reinforce that message one, two, three, four weeks down the line. Add that into your management philosophy Right, I'm going to re-roll out, I hate the word roll out, sorry, <laughs> but I've used it. I'm going to send that message out again just to make sure that everyone is still clear. You know, if your message is even just your why, if you're delivering a short project and you want to constantly deteriorate why, this is why we're doing it. This is why, Eric, you're important. This is why, Anthony, you're important. And delivering this is important, not only for you, the team, the business. Here's how it's important to our users, right? And I think... That level of communication comes back to, and should, in theory, you know, according to to reports and studies, should help people be more self-actualized in their work. Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) So you're you're right on a lot of points, but I do want to highlight one thing that I think is a a little dangerous, and I would suggest a slightly different approach to looking at it. Over-communicating, which is how you started describing it, is not actually a universal good. It, it is very often important to repeat communication until it lands, but um, over-communication can be problematic. Uh, if it's already landed, you don't really need uh, to keep communicating it in the same way, you may need to shift your communication to build on that shared understanding, but also try to set the stage for what the next uh, kind of development is. I think um, there's a tremendous book called The Pyramid Principle by this woman, Barbara Mento. She was the first really senior female employee of McKinsey, I think in the 1950s. And, and uh, she... Um, is also kind of famous for inventing the term MIS uh, or MISI, which stands for mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. The pyramid principle is this idea that you can structure communication uh, kind of in an answer first uh, format, at least in business, you know, let's just like get to the answer and then help people understand why that's true. And the beauty of that is, is like, you know, if you think of uh, communication, especially with a group as like a funnel, uh, like similar to a hiring funnel or an e-commerce funnel, as you progress, you're losing people, and it's actually super important. Like if we're having, if we're doing this communication, it, it it's because it's important. And so by starting with answer first, you don't you kind of like don't lose anybody, and then but they make it as far as they can kind of remain interested. But everyone sort of got the answer, and it also turns out it's very it's, it's a helpful tool for struct just structuring ideas so that they can be understood. Um, there's another great book called Why Your Writing Sucks, which I really like, where the, the author makes this point. It's like most people go through the educational system, you know, being asked to write to a certain length with, and the expectation is that the teacher really wants to read it and the other students might really want to read it and more is good. And in the real world, that's not at all how communication works. The shorter, the better. No one wants to read anything. More words is not good. We want to be tight and structured, and you want people to read it and understand, not say that was very beautifully written or what a nice story. Sometimes that has a place, but for the the actual nuts and bolts of daily communication, everything you learn in school about writing is mostly wrong. You know, It's like, keep it simple. So I would say that what is very important and what, what I, where I see people 
very often struggle is actually spending the time to structure communication so that it can be understood easily. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years, you know, you know, the value of writing in, in a commercial setting, for example, is that writing forces the author to think it through, you know, the different, and you know, why Amazon have gone down the path of writing is for a very good reason. It's proof of thinking, you know, the number of PowerPoint decks I've seen where it's clear that the the strategy of the presenter was to try to bluff their way through that they had an act, they sort of had an idea they're pretty sure it's right but they didn't think it through and if they have to write it down they have to think it through but the problem is that people equate that that means that they that you use writing to think but that's not that's not actually right the purpose of writing is to prove that the thinking has occurred you don't have to use writing to think and in fact if you do use writing to think you have to prepare to rewrite to be read, which for most people is actually way more effortful than finding a more efficient way to do their thinking, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why the very, the, the, the gold rat idea of inherent simplicity is so valuable, boiling it down to a few sentences rather than starting a document, you know, where you, it's like, I think I know where I'm going and I'm going to write this thing out and then I get halfway through and I realize I'm wrong takes a lot of energy to start over. Whereas if you can do the heavy thinking in a different medium, that's where it's easier to do the thinking, and then when you're confident, then start to write it. That's something that most people don't get that I haven't seen taught anywhere. And uh, I've actually given that the name Minto's Law. She, she had a very, dis, a very crisp description of the phenomenon. Once you start writing, you're on a path that's hard to change. But if you want to be truly agile and as a business... It's always changing. I want to. I want to jump back to the teams. I know we've we, we've sort of jumped on to over communication. There, sticking with teams before I've got that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you accountability, right? So we're talking about performance teams, engineering teams, product teams, DevOps, MLOps, data scientists, right? Very easy for one person. Oh, it's someone else. That's someone else. Oh, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like happens all the time. People are very unsure. How do you determine and how do you decide accountability or even very simply, what is accountability? Yeah, great question. Actually, I had a very uncomfortable moment with uh, Robert Gantz, one of the founders uh, of Zolando. He put me on the spot uh, regarding responsibility versus accountability. And I was in the uncomfortable position of being unclear what the difference was. And I think I sort of mumbled, I think responsibility means you're in trouble and accountability means you're fired or something like that. <laughs> Not a very helpful definition, but it, it that moment actually started uh, kind of an ongoing intellectual journey for me to understand, so what does all this mean? And what is accountability? Because mo I mean, certainly me, uh, as a somewhat lazy software engineer type, I, like, I didn't really like the word accountability. It sounded like it had to do with money and accountants, and that was not my thing. Ultimately, it's more helpful to think about the origin of the word accountability more in the to give an account of, like, tell the story. And um, at Zalando, uh, we created this thing called Radical Agility, which was based on a, on the work of Dan Pink, which is around purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And we made a major architectural shift and, and uh, did some, some uh, kind of... Uh, operating model innovation, not all of which went well, uh, but some of it did. And, um, and, and people remember it very fondly, at least certainly for what we were trying to achieve, even though I don't think we totally got there. But one of the criticisms was that in the face of autonomy, we didn't necessarily have a great uh, description of how that autonomy worked and how it connected to accountability. Uh, Kent Beck, who uh, is a little bit famous, I think, as the in inventor of extreme programming and one of the signers of the Agile Manifesto, tweeted some years later, and I remember seeing this and thinking, huh, I wish I'd had this before. Uh, account uh, autonomy without accountability is just vacation or something like that. And... Um, and then my boss later used a line which really stuck with me as well, which is that uh, accountability, sorry, autonomy has to be learned and it has to be earned. And um, I think that's 
I think that's all really quite useful stuff. But let me let me just talk about accountability for a second because accountability is enormously hard to define. Uh, at TomTom, Tom, we've created something we call Leader Fo- Leadership Foundation, which is a combination of, of our values and uh, a set of leadership principles, much smaller set than Amazon, but but similar in tone. But where we've also introduced something we call leadership behaviors. And uh, we defined four leadership behaviors. One of them is ownership. One of them is accountability. One of them is influencing. And one of them is multiplying. And collectively, what we found is that when people uh, exercise those behaviors, very good things happen. So it's actually kind of like one level down from the idea of leadership principles, uh, such as how Amazon might practice them. And it works at a more fundamental level in terms of how to give people guidance for how to behave in a company situation to really excel and learn and ultimately create value. And we spent some time focusing on accountability as a behavior. And for me, I think this is actually quite quite a breakthrough idea that, that I haven't seen anywhere else. If you think about accountability as essentially three things. That, so it is the behavior of being positively committed to what we're, we're trying to do, that it, it's both possible to do it and that it's genuinely worth doing. And this relates to disagree and commit, uh, which is one of the Amazon leadership principles, and, and really reinforces that idea that you need people to be committed to what they're doing. They can't be like, oh, it's a dumb idea, but I'm going to do it anyhow, and I'll get, you know, I'll get to say I told you so at the end. It's like, no, actually, you got to really get in the game. You got to get your head in the game. And it is, in some sense, like a Jedi mind trick that you play on yourself, or it can be. It's not always easy. But that commitment, you know, the idea of like, if we're, you know, we're all in a boat trying to row away from the volcano island that's about to explode. If one person thinks we should have gone the other way and they keep rowing that way while everyone is trying to row, like once the decision is made, everybody's got to be on board. And so if you are showing that commitment and that authentic isn't, isn't, if that commitment isn't authentic and it's not positive, then that's not accountable behavior. The second part, and it also relates to what we were talking about earlier, is the idea of transparency around what's the problem that we're trying to solve or what's the goal? What's our plan to get there? And how are we doing? And what's the right level of transparency and to whom is, you know, it's kind of situational and it requires judgment. But in general, if you don't want to share what's the problem that you're trying to solve or you don't want to share whatever state the plan is, but there's always got to be some plan, even if it's only in your head, you got to be able to describe this is what we're going to do. And if you are unwilling to be transparent about that, or if you're already in progress and you're unwilling to share how it's going, that's not accountable behavior. And then finally, the third part of it is around being open to evaluation. So there's a wonderful book called Thanks for the Feedback, where the the authors present this idea that there's three different kinds of feedback. There's affirmational feedback, which is that it's like, we're really happy you're here. You know, it's great working with you. I'm glad you're in the company. Um, And sometimes that's what people really need to hear, but it's not really going to do much other than get them back to zero or something. If they've gone uh, in a negative direction, it's not growth feedback at all. Second form is coaching feedback where you're really trying to help the person work out very often what they already know, but not always, but it is, it's a very unstructured and and very light guidance to help them work through what is inside them and what their potential is. And that is a very extensive form of growth feedback, but it is, it takes time and it's difficult to predict, which makes it difficult to manage. The third kind of feedback is evaluative feedback which is the kind of direct feedback where it's like, hey, you know, in that meeting, I have some ideas for how that could have gone better. Or even in a more private, you know, performance management discussion, look, you're not going to get promoted this time because you need to work on these things. And that those are obviously the, the difficult conversations to have. As a feedback giver, 
the point the 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 authors make, which I think is spot on. You got to identify what is the feedback receiver looking for. If they're looking for affirmative feedback and you give them evaluative feedback, not only are you wasting your breath because it's not going to land, you might actually be actively harming. And in general, as a feedback giver, you want to try to identify what kind of feedback is going to land here and then apply that. And obviously, it can't be the same kind of feedback all the time. You have to encourage people to have a range. But that openness as a feedback receiver to receive evaluative feedback, that's the third part of accountable behavior. If you are never that, if you are never seeking to hear what you need to hear, what is the thing people are thinking and not saying, then that's not accountable behavior either. And here's the thing. If you are all of those things and you are doing and behaving in that way, you are accountable. That's what makes you accountable. Nothing more is needed than that. The natural consequence of these very fundamental behaviors creates these kind of higher level structures that people recognize but have a hard time defining as what it means to be accountable. It's really, I mean, in a way, it's kind of simple and straightforward. And these are each things that you can learn and people can give you feedback on how you're doing on them and you can get better. And then what emerges from that behavior is high accountability. It's a beautiful thing. Nice, nice. Um, look, we've, we, we've been moving on, Eric. Um, are you ready for the, the final questions? Quick fire. Sure, yeah, hit me up. Good. Uh, question one, number one, I believe you know the answer to this one. What would you do different if you were to do it all again? Um, listen to my wife sooner. <laughs> She's the one that said management then, right? <laughs> no, but she's she had a wealth of things to teach me that I was not uh, open enough as soon as I should have been to understanding. Good feedback. You also mentioned a couple of books on, on here already, but if we were to talk about book, podcasts, or contents that you'd recommend for uh, other leaders, what what would you put up there? Uh, it's, a, it's actually quite a long list. I'd be happy to share that separately. I'll add it to the notes. <laughs> Uh, final question, Eric. What are your three non-negotiables when it comes to leadership or management? Uh, I have to be able to say what I think. I have to be able to stay true to my values. And I have to be able to develop anybody. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, that's us, Eric. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure um really really enjoyed the topic today thank you for your insights into, Anthony, into it's real leadership pleasure. yeah thanks very much have a, have a good one you too take care that concludes another enlightening episode of the leadership labs podcast if you found today's episode thought-provoking and informative be sure to subscribe to the leadership labs on your preferred podcast platform or on youtube thank you once again for joining us on this journey through the leadership labs until next time